Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. Prozent Rindfleisch aus Deutschland. Cheese, Zwiebel, Ketchup, Senf, Majestätisch gut. Der Hamburger Real Cheese, nur bei McDonalds. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather Charlie Chaplin and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the documentary on the BBC World Service and to this special edition of Heart and Soul. I'm Rajiv Gupta and this is the second in a three-part series exploring religion in the 21st century. We're asking young people how they make sense of their faith in today's modern world, especially as much of religious practice comes from ancient scripture. Now, today's episode focuses on a faith that is considered to be the oldest of them all, and it's believed to be nearly 4,000 years old. Of course, I'm talking about Hinduism. And having grown up in a Hindu household myself is something I'm very much looking forward to discussing with our three guests that we've assembled from all around the world. So let's get them to briefly introduce themselves. And uh, Orm, shall we start with you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, hi, namaste. My name is Om Dumatkar. I'm 36 years old and I live and work in London in banking, although I'm currently on sabbatical in India, which is where I was born. I've been a student of Hindu scripture, which we call Shastra, for the last 17 years. And for the last year or so, I've launched and run a YouTube channel, which shares wisdom from Shastra and how we can apply this in our day-to-day lives. So namaste. My name is Prasidha Sudhakar. I'm 23 years old. I'm based in Pittsburgh, United States, because I'm a student at Carnegie Mellon University studying information security. And I'm also an analyst at the Network Contagion Research Institute, where I use data-driven approaches to mitigate online harms. So my name is Thomas Awood. I'm a fourth-year languages student at Cambridge University, where I'm currently based. And I was actually born in a Christian family, but since a very young age, I've been involved in Hinduism. And uh, I am a follower of the BAPS Swaminarayan movement. Thank you all for that. So as we said, Hinduism and Hindu tradition is very old. But I want to know how the three of you make sense of it today in today's modern world. You're young people. I'm guessing you're living quite metropolitan lifestyles. So how does this ancient faith and those ancient scriptures, how are they relevant for you today? Orm? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing worth noting is that Hinduism uh, doesn't call itself Hinduism. It calls itself Sanatan Vedic Dharma. And Sanatan, the word itself, means eternal, timeless. 
And that's effectively how I relate to it. I mean, I came to this faith. I was born in the faith, but I really came to it when I was about 18 or 19 years old because I found it relevant to my life as a university student in a foreign country. It helped me navigate all sorts of things, uh, including procrastination and laziness and trying to focus in class. And I found that it was relevant as I was a young professional trying to navigate my way through uh, the interesting world of banking. It helped me navigate all sorts of challenges like bereavements, breakups, and so on. It's different aspects of Hinduism that really speak to us in different situations. Two important pillars of Hinduism include sadhana, which is our practice, and sangha, which is community. So when I say sadhana, it includes various forms of meditative practices, It also includes yoga, for example, which in today's world is a huge answer to all sorts of challenges, both physical and emotional. Mm. I mean, it's really interesting because you mentioned some of those things of sadhanas and sanghas. I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, my sort of association with Hinduism growing up. And for me, I mean, those terms weren't even things that I I could resonate with. I mean, my experience of of Hinduism was as a young boy being taken to, say, the mandir, the temple with your family, you sit down in front of a pandit, the the priest, and you're carrying out various rituals from banana leaves and pouring water into a pot and all sorts of smashing of the coconut. Zoli in later later life, I realised that some of these rituals, as it were, had had meanings. The smashing of the coconut was essentially like the breaking of the ego. So I, I want to speak to a little bit about rituals and 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 this aspect of Hinduism, because from the outside looking in, it can seem like quite a, a strange faith. I, I mean, I wonder if uh, Prasida, you you agree with that? I mean, have you come across that from people who don't know about Hinduism? You have these elephant gods and monkey gods. I mean, what's what's it all about? I think that that's a really great point that you raised, both for people on the outside looking in, but also for Hindus themselves. Because to be honest with you, Rajiv, I also had similar experience. Um, during my teenage years, where I would also go to the mandir and be seeing all these rituals and also just seeing things at home that would take place. And I would just ask, what is what is the point of this? Um, and really, I didn't come to understand this was more like allegorical and this is more like representing something specific only later in life. And I think that that's a very natural progression that a lot of young Hindus go through. And I think the same is true for those who are looking in who are non-Hindus who are seeing all these types of rituals or uh, different aspects of Hindu gods, like asking questions like, oh, why do you have an elephant god? Why do you have a monkey god? Why do you believe in so many gods? I've been asked so many times, like, don't you have 33 million gods? Like, what is what exactly is the point? Um, so I do think that, like, there are two aspects to this one that's just fueled by ignorance, um, given that there are not a, not a lot of Hindu educational institutions, specifically in the West. But I, I do think that this is something that the Hindu community should address, which is creating more educational avenues and opportunities. I, I mean, Prasida, I wonder what what stopped you from turning away from it and what, what made you think, actually, I want to learn more? Because like you said, people are actually put off themselves. Hindus themselves are thinking, oh, we don't really get this. What what made you choose a different path? Honestly, I, it's, a, it's a great question. And something that I've also wondered myself is why is it that I have decided to turn more into the religion, not want to turn away? And truly, I think the answer is 
the fact that I would go to India every summer since I was a child, there was never a single summer that I didn't go, basically, except for during the times of COVID. And I would actually be walking barefoot in Tiruvannamalai, which is uh, in the south of India and Tamil Nadu. And so really absorbing that energy of just rishis and all these spiritual, spiritually charged gurus, I feel has really instilled this sense of curiosity in me. I want to come to you, Thomas, because you're actually the only one here that wasn't born into Hinduism. And I wonder how you engage with the, the ritual aspect of, of Hinduism. Yeah. Um, so I think one thing that a lot of outsiders and even a lot of Hindus themselves can think um, is that, oh, you know, all of this is just, yeah, bogus ritualism with absolutely no meaning. But I think there's such a huge value in looking at how rituals and the things that we do, um, you know, even some things we do every day, the deep meaning that they actually carry that have been passed down all through the generations and through thousands of years. So I think it's so easy to dismiss these things. But mm. when you actually look behind them, they can reveal a very profound meaning. I mean, I mentioned uh, the coconut and the, and the splash of the ego. Give people a, an example of, of what we're talking about here. Yeah, so I think something like arti is a very key ritual within Hinduism, which is the offering of fire to God, which takes place in pretty much every single Hindu temple around the world. And that originates from the time, you know, all the way back those thousands of years ago in the Indus Valley, when, you know, fire was the most precious thing, almost. It was the sort of the fundamental thing through which life revolved around. So offering the most precious thing you can uh, to God, you know, becomes an important symbol of surrender and of devotion. Um, and then that's something which you then take blessings from. You take blessings from the earth itself, um, because nature and the earth is something that's deeply respected within Hinduism. And I think... Something like arti, that's very key. And also, as Swaminarayan's daily, we do something called mansi puja, which is mental offering. But it's also key to sort of calm your mental framework and to surrender your your mind. So, Thomas, you're you're a university student, and uh, I remember my university life, and we weren't we weren't always thinking about calming the mind. We were more concerned about more exuberance of, of university life. I wonder how you put all these things into practice while navigating being a student as well? It, it is a bit hard. I think especially when um, most people, you know, on a university campus certainly do not uh, follow a strict religious life, to put it <laughs> bluntly. And I think for us as well, we believe in following a little bit of a stricter code of conduct. So strictly vegetarian, strictly no alcohol, any kind of intoxicants. So again, you know, the the university scene is very heavily centered around alcohol. So that's something which, you know, presents challenges for students like me. But I think it's interesting to, I always think of a quote from BKS Ayengar, who is a, you know, really, really important figure in yoga. And he used to say, be the lotus amidst the muddy water. So, you know, basically it doesn't matter what your surroundings are or kind of what people are doing or how many distractions you have or whatever, but it's your responsibility to maintain that serenity and maintain that steadfastness. And I think that kind of concept helps me to remain grounded because, you know, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in favorable or unfavorable circumstances, you basically have to try and make the best of it. I think to kind of add on to that point, I, I definitely agree with what uh, Thomas is saying. It does pose some challenges, but I think that one thing that has really helped me as part of this journey of, of being a Hindu is finding like-minded other Hindus who 
feel the same way that you do. Mm. And you're sort of able to find common ground and do things that you enjoy and also come together for your faith together without without having to do any of these other things that uh, make you uncomfortable in any way. Mm -hmm. So Orm, you've actually made this a bit of your life's work now in terms of educating people about Hinduism, about rituals. We've got a little clip from, I think it's one of your social media channels about just how you go about doing that. The Lord's name is the divine power manifested in sound form. Whether it's Bhagwan Shri Krishna, Bhagwan Shiva, Devi Ma, Ganesha, repeating their names with devotion and focus manifests their ability in our heart, which means that we are able to engage with the outer world with greater focus, with greater clarity, and with reduced attachment. This means that regardless of the circumstances, success is always ours. So, Orm, that's you in your guru mode. I wonder where you got your knowledge from. I came to Hinduism in, in a very interesting way. Obviously, I was born a Hindu, but um, when I was in university, uh, I certainly wasn't as focused on my faith and my practice as Prasiddha and Thomas are. I think similar to most students, uh, I, I was there to have a good time and, you know, in the process, earn a degree. <laughs> Particularly when we speak about rituals, I, I think in some ways... I was happy to be away from the more ritualistic side of Hinduism. But what I found very quickly when I was at university is that I felt like something was missing. I mean, I felt very strongly that here I am calling myself a Hindu and I don't even know about the Bhagavad Gita. I don't know what's written in it. I don't really have a perspective on the diversity of thought, of expression, of worship, of deities within Hinduism. And I was lucky at that time that I came in contact with an organization called Chinmaya Mission, uh, which is based in London, which is based worldwide, but they have a center in London. Mm. And over there, through the resident teacher, I was able to first learn the Bhagavad Gita and then understand the more ritualistic aspect of the religion. And I think that was a not just a huge, huge blessing, but a really pivotal moment in my life, which changed the way that I interact with Hinduism. In, in my experience, Hinduism is not a religion as much of faith as it is of experience. So, for example, quite often I'm in, you know, board meetings, making presentations on strategy and how many millions of pounds we're going to need in the next year and what we've done with the last set of millions of pounds that we've had. And a very simple practice that I adopt is holding my hands in a specific mudra or a specific posture that has been proven to regulate your breathing, regulate your heartbeat. And that makes me that much more present as well as effective in that meeting. I find it hard to be on this journey with you in terms of here you are, you're in, in the world of banking what's considered you know capitalism in full force and at the same time you're in the boardroom trying to regulate your breathing and then connect with with a spiritual side i mean just the juxtaposition at play there i mean can you just give everyone a little bit of an insight into what the thinking is there look i'll be very honest um coming out of the pandemic in 2021 i had very seriously considered quitting banking i mean as you can imagine it's a very fast-paced industry Things are changing every day and you have to stay on top of things. Otherwise, you're going to be swept away, particularly in the context of what was happening in the wider economy during COVID. Mm -hmm. And one day while meditating, 
I came across this thought that says that bhakti, which is the devotional practice, is not just for the temple. It's not just for our meditation space. It's also for the boardroom. And I, I wrote down in my notebook saying bhakti for the boardroom. And what that means to me personally is not that we go and start singing or meditating in the boardroom, but to bring an aspect of our faith, our belief, and our philosophy such that it serves the world around us. Now, in a banking boardroom, you're making decisions that are not just going to impact the bank's bottom line, but effectively families, businesses, as well as the country's economy in a very real way. And I think to be able to bring philosophies like Hinduism that are inclusive and all-encompassing, in my experience, has meant that I take better decisions and I make better recommendations in the day job. Is it easy? No, I don't think so. But I really turn back to the Bhagavad Gita, which isn't delivered in, you know, in the, in the Himalayas. It's not delivered in a cave somewhere. It's not by the seashore in Goa. It's delivered on a battlefield. And what that tells us is that we are all living our own battles day in or day out. And this philosophy is available to us. This theology as well as practice is available to us to bring into those spaces. For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America, and the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism, so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. Prozent Rindfleisch aus Deutschland. Cheese, Zwiebeln, Ketchup, Senf, Majestätisch gut. Der Hamburger Real Cheese, nur bei McDonalds. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. So just a reminder, you're listening to Heart and Soul on the BBC World Service, where we're asking three young Hindus from around the world how their 4,000-year-old faith fits in with their lives today. So let's hear now from Adriana Nelson, a 27-year-old black woman whose faith grew as a result of a childhood fascination with Hindu art at a local museum in Ohio. It was Hindu art within the museum that really sparked my interest and inspired my faith. I've been Hindu since I was 19. I was born into Christianity, but converted to Hinduism. As far as my chosen sect of Hinduism, well, I've really made it my own. 
There's no exact name for it, but to best describe it, I primarily adhere to Tamil or Southern Indian Hindu practice. It emphasizes celebration of divine feminine power and the concept of Shakti, or the goddess, uh, blended with some aspects of Javanese and Balinese Hinduism. Worship for these goddesses for me involves praying in front of a makeshift shrine in my room. I recite mantras while I'm worshiping. Since I started off reading and interpreting Sanatana Dharma through my own accord, I never really sought after a guru or felt the need to, even to today. I try to learn through my own observations. There's a temple here in Cleveland that I occasionally visit called the Shiva Vishnu Temple. As I get to know more Hindus, I learn more about their own spiritual practices. Getting to know others that are Hindu has been very tough for me here. Oftentimes I've gotten very positive reactions. Sadly, the most negative reactions come from locals who aren't Hindu at all. Um, the challenges expand to my online presence as well. My page is strictly to be about art and culture solely. I was met with really open arms by many, which was wonderful. But simultaneously, I was met with backlash from others. I was faced with one or two accusations from outsiders, what they considered right-wing nationalist affiliations, just for my identity alone. From other Hindu insiders, though, I was met with skepticism by some. Um, they believed that because I am Black that I couldn't be Hindu and that I didn't really belong. I used to let it get to me a little bit, I would say. But then as I grew, I, within my faith and within myself, I, I really began to brush that feeling off. Mm, so that's Adriana. Nelson there. I wonder if any of you can sort of resonate with with Adriana's experiences. Yeah, I can definitely resonate with that one. I think it's the people that have the most questioning and the most sort of confusion are definitely non-Hindus. And I haven't faced sort of outright, you know, discrimination necessarily, but it's more I face a lot of questioning now and then. I used to regularly every day wear Tilak Chandlo which is sort of, you know, the red dot and then a U-shaped sort of marking on my forehead mm. and found it quite astounding, really, like what a difference, a tiny bit of powder on your forehead makes to the way that people perceive you. I mean, what because way? What sort of reception were you getting? Well, I mean, people just kind of random people. I would just be going about my daily life, you know, buying train tickets or whatever. And the people would say, oh, what's that on your forehead? Oh, are you Indian? You don't look Indian. What religion are you? Where are you from? It's like, you know, this constant stream of questioning, which, I mean, you know... I suppose it's the sort of normal, sort of in more of an inquisitive way than an offensive yeah. way? Or, or, I mean, how it did is. you take how did you take it? I mean, yeah, that is, it's not particularly a problem. I'm always happy to oblige. Not so much when I'm in a rush and, you know, trying to get on a train. But <laughs> usually, you know, if people do ask me questions, I've found that it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty benign usually. But I, I have seen elements which definitely aren't benign towards Hinduism. I mean, I've seen peers of mine who have sort of shared really outlandish claims like, you know, we shouldn't celebrate Diwali because it's celebrating caste supremacy and things like that. You know, these kinds of academic, well, so-called academic attacks on Hinduism, which are really sort of preposterous. And they're not realising that, uh, you know, they're actually causing harm for Hindu students. And, you know, I've also seen people write about things like, you know, wearing tilak, as I, I used to and, you know, sometimes still do. You know, that's a sim symbol of 
upper caste supremacy or whatever, you know, I, I, I don't actually have a caste, so I'm not perpetuating any kind of um, caste supremacy there. And, as, you know, we don't actually believe in the concept of caste, but that's a different conversation. I think these kinds of things, which, you know, often come from academics themselves, who in many cases actually are Indian and from a Hindu background, who are perpetuating these really harmful claims that do then have real impacts on how, you know, students feel safe or whether they feel unsafe on their campus. And, you know, I think that's pretty sad um, that that happens a lot in, in the UK and, and the US, I've seen too. Orm, how much of this do you think is wrapped up about what's going on in India at the moment with uh, what's seen as the, the rise of Hindu nationalism with the BJP? I think there's two elements to this. I think the first one is Hindu phobia. And I think with regards to Hindu phobia, that which we don't understand, we don't trust. And that which we don't trust, we fear and eventually start to hate. And I think Hinduism, because of its depth, because of its breadth, because of its diversity, is a faith that's quite hard to understand. And I've started to make it my life's purpose almost to spread greater awareness about Hinduism um, through the scriptures and through other means. Now, how does that play up against the political context in places like India. So to your question about the political scenario in India, I've been in, I've been here for the last four months watching the political developments around me. And I think it would be naive to assume that now is the first time that faith, whether Hindu or otherwise, has become part of the political discourse in India. I think for as long as the country has existed, uh, whether as a modern democracy or even before that, faith has been a huge part of people's lives. And I think if you, even if we just unpack the word politics, it means the affairs of the people. And if faith is a big part of how people see themselves, then of course it's going to play out into the affairs of the people. Prasida. I think there are two aspects of this, which uh, Adriana and then Thomas also touched on. The first is that when it just comes to uh, you know, showing your Hindu identity very openly. For example, me as a woman who wears a bindi and also wears other things that openly show me as a Hindu, I think that that is met with not just, you know, some kind of benign questioning, but uh, actually with hostility and animosity. There have been more times than I can count where people have asked, like, why is your head bleeding? Why do you, why are you a dot head? And even refer to me as a dot head within the classroom and other educational and academic spaces. So this is not just about, let's say, somebody not really knowing what I'm wearing, but actually showing hostility against me for who I am. And I think the second aspect is that uh, of people who are just being targeted and called some kind of a political actor just for being a Hindu person. I sort of recognized this starting around two or three years ago when a friend of mine who was an intern at NASA, who was just a practicing Hindu, and NASA had posted a image of her on their internship page, immediately was met with comments that she was some kind of a political actor and also all kinds of dehumanizing rhetoric against her. It's been Really interesting hearing from the three of you on all these topics today. I just want to ask you finally to to all three of you what it means for you to be Hindu in the 21st century today. I'm going to start with you, Tom. Yeah, so I think to me, um, being a Hindu means being grounded within my spiritual identity, but loving all others at the same time. So basically, our guru 
um, you know, our previous guru, Pramukh Swami Maharaj, and reiterated by our current guru, Mahan Swami Maharaj, you know, Pramukh Swami's motto was, in the joy of others lies our own. And that's basically the motto that I try and live by, to serve everyone, no matter who they are, and see beyond material distinctions. Hinduism teaches you to love everyone and everything, regardless of who they are. And that's, for me, the essence, really serving everyone. Prasiddha? I would say that being a Hindu means being a seeker of truth and also striving for justice. I think that having spiritual grounding to do both of these is really important. And somebody who is open to learning about different perspectives, thoughts, ultimately becoming a better individual, not just for yourself, but for the well-being of society and humanity as a whole. And finally, Om. For me, being Hindu is to seek our most evolved self, whether that's self-realization in scriptural language or just living a happy and fulfilled life, to use normal everyday uh, discourse. And the way that I choose to do it is through the service of society, through what I'm doing on YouTube. So it's a very practical thing for me. Fantastic. Well, it's been really interesting, amazing discussion from the three of you, Om Dumatkar, Prasidha Sudhakar and Thomas Awad. Thank you all so much for joining me. So that's it for today's episode of Heart and Soul and this exploration of religion in the 21st century. Next week, we're going to be looking into Buddhism and you can hear all the episodes on Heart and Soul and this series by searching BBC Heart and Soul. So this program was presented by me, Rajiv Gupta, and the producer was Vishva Samani. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace, set the pace. Fearlessly Pink, The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.